this 24 hours a day, you sleep six hours, and you have 18 hours left. Now, I know there's some of you out there now and says, well, wait a minute, I sleep eight hours or nine hours. Well, then just sleep faster, I would recommend. This was Arnold Schwarzenegger joining the large group of successful people who claim that sleeping little was key to being highly productive. Is this actually good advice? Right on time for the switch to daylight savings time here in Europe, we talk about sleep. What is the function of sleep and how do we know when we should sleep? What happens if we don't sleep? In case you missed it, I published the whole conversation with our guests on Patreon. These extended episodes have additional information, are more conversational, are published ahead of time and don't have these annoying announcements. And on top of it all, you get to help us keep the lights on. This podcast and the other activities of Science for Progress take a lot of time and effort, and our sole source of income, other than Patreon, is my savings account, which is running low. So please help me and the volunteers of Science for Progress by becoming a patron on www.patreon.com slash progress. I am your host Dennis Eckmeyer and you're listening to episode 23 of the Science for Societal Progress podcast. Hello, my name is Lars. I'm a biologist, neuroscientist by training. I've worked for several years in neuroscience and particularly in sleep research. And one month ago, I started my new career as a science communicator. So I'm working for a YouTube channel who's doing awesome German language science videos. And this YouTube channel is called MyLab. It was founded and run by Dr. Mighty Nguyenkim, who received multiple science communication awards in Germany. And it's funded by the German Public Broadcasting Services. Lars made some videos by himself too, and he has a German-language science communication blog called Lars und die Welt, Lars and the World. You can find the links in the show notes. But we are more interested in Lars' former life as a neuroscientist in sleep research. I started sleep research in, in California in, in the lab of Tom Kilduff at SRI International. I looked at a rare kind of interneurons in the cortex. So interneurons subdivide in several other types. And, and one of the rarest types in the cortex of the brain of rodents was identified by the lab to be active uh, selectively during sleep. Like these neurons appear to be off during wakefulness and on during sleep. To see them in the cortex of all places, that was very exciting because cortex is like everything you consciously are doing or perceiving usually has its representation in the cortex. So you would think when you're largely unconscious, like you are in most parts of sleep, your your, your cortex would, would have very little activity. And in the cortex to see cells that are most active When you're sleeping, that was very uh, surprising. So I was looking at those guys in detail from different angles. So their activity does not simply depend on the state. They're not just on when the animals are sleeping and off when they're awake. But the higher the sleep pressure of the animals was, the more active these cells were. Sleep pressure is the physiological need to sleep. And we have a poor understanding of what in the brain senses how long you have been awake and how much sleep you, you need now. Or when you're asleep, how much sleep longer you need before you're fully, fully rested. We uh, can put our finger on where in the brain this is actually measured. And now we identify neurons 
they do get the information. Um, so we don't know if they themselves are measuring it or if they receive the information from somewhere else. But it feels like with the knowledge we were able to, um, uh, to, to get in that lab, we are very close to understanding where this, where this measurement actually is, has been done in the brain just by, by looking at these uh, neurons now and, and retracing their, their inputs and their, their working. So that's, that's very exciting. And when I went back to Bonn to the DZNE, that's the German Center for Neurodegenerative Disease, I was more interested in the uh, physiological function of sleep and the um, connection to, to dementia. And I was looking at a particular neurodegenerative disease and wanted to see if this disease causes more damage in, a, in an animal that doesn't get all the sleep it needs. Don't have the clear answer from that line of studies yet, um, but there's yeah, there was a lot of uh, very interesting uh, things also. So Lars was looking at the effects of chronic sleep deprivation on the progression of dementia in rodents. And this is, of course, current cutting-edge research. But looking at the effects of sleep deprivation is also key to the much more fundamental question of what does sleep do in the first place? So if you sleep deprive a person... The first thing you see is strong cognitive decline, like reaction times get get very very bad creative thinking suffers mood suffers a lot of things like that but it turns out this doesn't actually tell us why we sleep some researchers hypothesize that this decline in cognitive ability is not the reason for why we sleep instead it may be the brain protecting itself from overuse there is a working model of understanding for this protective function of being tired and the cognitive impairment that comes with it they compare the brain to to the muscle, and so if you're if you're doing heavy exercise, your muscles will feel weak after a while. And there's uh, like a friend told me this this very nice anecdote. He liked to do uh, this kind of rock climbing thing where you hang on to the rock with your with your fingertips and then try to climb up. And if you do that for a while, your 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 hands get get really weak. And when he got home in the evening. He wasn't even able to to open his drawer to get a new pair of socks because he couldn't hold on to the to the drawer handle strong enough because his hands were so weak. Um, and so what what happens to the to the muscles apparently is um, not that you wear them out so much that you cannot use them anymore, but you wear them out to a point where where the body shuts them down to prevent them from receiving serious damage. And so apparently if you're unlucky and you do some crazy sort of exercise, um, people might overstrain their muscles so much that they get uh, rhabdomyolysis, I think is the, is the rhabdomyolysis, I think is the, the English term, uh, where the muscle really is injured and you, 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 you uh, lose um, muscle mass because muscle cells actually die. Uh, and it kind of, it's, it can, can get dangerous because it's uh, very stressful for the, for the kidneys. And so an explanation is, um, apparently that your muscles, if you overtrain or overuse your muscles, they start shutting down before this happens. So it's a kind of a protective mechanism. So the shutting down uh, that you experience that causes your, you to have problems getting your, your, your socks out of the drawer is not that you have uh, worn down your muscles, but it's a, protective mechanism of your body and the idea of, of these guys is that the same thing is uh, tiredness and the brain when you do some say heavy thinking or whatever going on in your brain uh, the same things might apply like your, your uh, cells are um, focusing on the work and not on the maintenance and at some point 
you might get in a range where, where this becomes dangerous for the cells and you might actually start killing off single brain cells from thinking too hard, if you will, or too long at a stretch. And uh, so to prevent you from actually doing damage to your brain, you start being kind of not, not just feeling tired, but being less cognitively capable, but not because you have worn it out to that point, but because there's a mechanism in place that wants to protect the brain from actually starting to receive damage from what you're doing. So in our search for the reason why we sleep, we seem to have found out why we are tired instead, which apparently is a different thing. So again, the question, why do we sleep? Um, I'm thinking of, of sleep as a physiological maintenance being done. Uh, you would imagine that when a, when a cell uh, is very active, like a brain cell, a neuron would be very active, a lot of the energy and effort of the cell would be um, invested in the, the actual work that the cell is doing, like, like transporting, processing information. And then you might, for example, have um, a wear and tear of certain proteins. They're not made to live forever, but they have to uh, be replaced every now and then. And it uh, would be reasonable to assume that the cell would not take care of these jobs, like replacing proteins and, and repairing membranes and things like that, while there are more urgent things to do because the cell is working. And once it stopped working, it would take care of these maintenance jobs. For example, this, this quite new, very exciting idea that you need sleep to clear metabolites out of your brain. Uh, what these guys have done is um, they, they have looked at uh, rodents and looked at the distribution of fluorescent dyes in the space between the brain cells. And then they, they could measure how long it takes for the dye to get cleared out from the brain. And more by accident, they observed that when the animals fall asleep, the rate of clearance is several times faster, like four times faster. This would mean that the brain powers down, in quotation marks, during sleep. But I learned that no, sleep is not about resting and maintenance because the brain is actually very active. It processes information gathered in the wake phase to consolidate memories. There is, for example, evidence that after sleep, animals perform better on learned tasks than they did during training the day before. How do these two opposite views consolidate? There are times during sleep where the brain is very active and that's mainly REM sleep, the rapid eye movement sleep, where the brain is as active as it is during wakefulness. But um, REM sleep only um, takes up a, a rather small fraction of, of the whole sleep duration um, of, a, of a human. And most of the sleep is the called uh, so-called non-REM sleep. And during non-REM sleep, you have slow waves and the deeper your sleep is, the more of these slow waves you have. And um, the slow waves, uh, uh, that's what you call... So if you if you record the electric activity on the scalp, that's the EEG, then you see these slow waves. And these come from synchronous activity of large um, parts of the brain that all kind of do the same thing at once. And so they kind of go on and off all together. Uh, and when they go off in this um, kind of off part of the slow wave, the brain cells are completely inactive. And that's maybe like half half a second that comes um, uh, repeatedly where the brains are completely, uh, the, the cells are completely inactive. 
And this would fit the idea that you would need inactivity to do some sort of maintenance work, whatever that is. Uh, and so that, that wouldn't be a contradiction. But still, then you would have other sleep phases, like the, the lighter sleep with less of the slow waves, but more of, of other um, signatures you see in the EG or the REM sleep where the, where the brain is much more active. And this simply might uh, serve other purposes. So the brain is very active, but not all the time during sleep. You would now think that, okay, that means that the different sleep phases, such as REM and non-REM, have distinct roles. However, that would be too simple. For example, as Lars just explained, maintenance occurs during inactive moments, things like memory consolidation during more active moments. But these states constantly change within the classically defined sleep phases. We simply find more active moments during REM sleep and more inactive moments during non-REM sleep. So we have this need to perform maintenance work in the brain. In sleep research, they call the build-up of the need to sleep sleep pressure. On the other side, we have tiredness, which serves as a protective mechanism that reduces the build-up of sleep pressure and the possible physiological damage to the brain by reducing the activity of the brain. But sleep pressure is not the only factor that determines your tiredness. Sleep is not only governed or regulated by the amount of sleep pressure that has accrued, but also by the, the time of day, the circadian rhythm. During the, the night, you're more tired than during the day. You sleep best when you have high sleep pressure and it's the time for sleeping. And you have your brightest wakefulness when it's the subjective daytime. And you're well-rested when those both come together. Um, for example, when you have a jet lag, that's very obvious that you, you have been awake all the time, like for 24 hours in a row, but you still can't sleep because it feels like it's bright day for you. Well, if you're working for your exam, you're learning the whole night through, you might realize that there's certain time of the, of the night where it's most difficult to stay awake, say four uh, o'clock for most of the people. And if you're past that point and it gets five or six o'clock, it becomes more easy to, to stay awake. So that's part of your circadian timing. But then once it's 8 a.m., you're not as awake as you would have been at 8 a.m. if you would have slept. You're now really tired from that all-nighter and your performance... Declines a lot. Like there are studies um, comparing lost sleep with alcohol intoxication. And you have the same same job subjects in a crossover randomized design, and they either either have to drink alcohol or stay awake. And losing about one night of sleep is like being just above the the legal limit of of alcohol, where you're not allowed to drive anymore. So don't drive after an all nighter. Yeah, that's that what should that that definitely what should be the advice. Now this was the outcome from not sleeping a whole night, but surely you can just cut two hours from your nightly sleep. Uh, let's assume you're very impressed by Schwarzenegger and he's your idol and you want to take his advice wherever possible and you're unlucky and you're a standard person who requires eight hours of sleep every day, a standard adult. That would be me. And you, yeah, <laughs> Pretty, and, and myself exactly. too. Um, and you say, um, well, now I want to be more diligent and sleep only six hours every night. Then you're lacking two hours of sleep per night. And so that means you have two hours of sleep pressure more in your 24-hour day. And those two hours accumulate. Every night you, you're repeating that, 
you're adding two hours of sleep debt of of sleep pressure uh, to your to your account to your sleep sleep debt account, and there have been studies uh, lab experiments performed where you do pretty much exactly that. Like you, you select people that have a ad libitum, like the, um, spontaneous, if you just leave them alone, their, their sleep will be eight hours per night. You, you just take those guys and then part them in three groups. And one of them is allowed to keep on sleeping eight hours per night. One group sleeps only six hours per night. So that those will be the Schwarzenegger fans. And one, one group gets even further and sleeps only four hours. Per night. I don't know if that's the Elon Musk fans or what he says, but so <laughs> yeah, they, they want to be I even so. more diligent. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and then uh, then um, what the researchers did what uh, was to do several tests on those guys that are sensitive for for sleep pressure. For example, reaction time tests. Um, and you see that that um, every night or well every twenty four hour cycle, where they repeat that, their performance gets worse. And they have done the the duration of that study was two week. And for, for each day, it still gets worse. And there's no, within those two weeks, you don't see a plateau. Like every day it gets worse. But if you look at the subjective measures, which, which is basically asking, like the, it's, a, it's a, a standardized questionnaire that asks questions like, do you, do you feel a headache? Do you feel tired? And then you, the, you rate um, and give scores to those, uh, to those questions. And then with those subjective measures, you do see a plateau like after three or four days. So that means subjectively, it feels like, well, the first three days were hard, but now I'm kind of used to that and I'm at my new level and I'm following the Schwarzenegger advice and, and I'm good. So you don't realize that you do get worse and worse every day. And uh, we don't know how, how long that will go on, but at least for two weeks, you're getting, for every two hours of sleep, you, you lack every night. Uh, your performance declines. This means that, especially with consistent lack of sleep, you cannot trust your feelings about sleep pressure. Unfortunately, we don't have an objective measure for sleep pressure either. It would be fantastic if we could do that, not just to punish those guys who, who drive after partying, but uh, to to just measure yourself and know, um, do, do I really objectively sleep sufficiently or not? Can Can I cut half an hour without any health consequences or not? Or should I sleep? 10 minutes more, that would be awesome if we would have a clear measure like that. But unfortunately, we are not, not even close. Um, of course, you can measure something like that with professional traffic participants like um, uh, trolley drivers or, or pilots or something where you just track the whole whole day and then you can require that they uh, have breaks of a certain length. Mm -hmm. And that, that's very reasonable that we are doing that. Because we cannot objectively measure our sleep depth and we can get used to lack of sleep after a few days, people can become habitually sleep-deprived. Well, imagine um, you follow Schwarzenegger's advice and you have a job where you don't have to be fully alert all the time, but uh, you just have a, even when you're just half alert, but if you're working longer, that still gives you a lot of benefits. And um, you can imagine a number of jobs where, where this would be true. Um, uh, then... Is it reasonable to just pull through and feel not as good, but still um, work more hours? And the answer is that uh, very likely uh, it would be bad for your health. If you if you talk about health and disease, um, it's always nice to make the audience aware of, of the level of 
evidence that there are. Like if you have a, a medication, a pill or some other treatment, this is uh, usually tested against a placebo uh, and you, we are very certain that it works and how much it works and what side effects are. Uh, and for um, a lot of a lot of things, we don't have this highest level of evidence, uh, but there are other ways to get evidence. And um, one thing is the epidemiological observation. So you just look at a lot of people and see how much they sleep and things like um, um, that are indicators of they don't sleep as much as they would like to. For example, if they sleep longer on the weekends than during the working days, then you conclude, well, they, they obviously have to cut the, the, the sleep during the working days. So you look for signs like that. Uh, and then you um, see that people who sleep much less than these average uh, six to nine or seven to nine hours have an increased risk for certain diseases, uh, like for cardiovascular diseases like heart attacks um, or strokes or for uh, type 2 diabetes, also for certain uh, um, neurodegenerative diseases like dementias. But you also see the same thing for the people who sleep very long. So that's, it's this uh, U-shaped curve. And, and with this kind of evidence, you obviously have the problem um, that a correlation is not causation. So you see that these things correlate, but you don't know if the one causes the other or the other the one or some third thing causes both of them. So then it's nice if you get some mechanistical understanding. And if you look at uh, type 2 di diabetes, we can see that if we have um, young, healthy adults um, that don't have any trace of pre-diabetes uh, um, signs and sleep deprive them, they suddenly look like um, people who are much older and have a uh, have had several years of very bad uh, eating habits. Um, uh, what so what does it look like that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I re when I said that, I realized I, I people kind of don't look like that, right? <laughs> a few things. I, I just look at his nose, man. I got um, all gray no, so, in a week of sleep deprivation. <laughs> so, so what you can do is, um, um, you, um. You, you have you have a person and I just give him a, um, a defined um, volume of sugar and then measure the, the blood sugar content. Mm -hmm. And um, when the sugar is absorbed and goes in the blood, you see this peak of sugar concentration goes up. Then insulin kicks in and sugar gets taken out of the blood and, and the peak drops very sharply and then kind of you're, you're back to normal. So you have this sharp peak of blood sugar and that's the healthy young people kind of response to um well eating eating sugar mm -hmm. um, so some sort of stress test that is being yeah done. like a sugar stress like you could mm -hmm. yeah like a candy test candy <laughs> stress test um so if you do the same on a person who's older and uh, obese and eats plenty donuts every day you will see that the um he's very likely that the um, sugar peak peak remains longer so it also goes up quite quite steeply, but um, the effectiveness of, of the insulin is kind of kind of delayed, and then um, the same the same candy stays in your blood longer before um, your body is, is back to normal. And this is what also you see with a sleep deprived person. So the, the the sugar peak looks much more like that of an older, less healthy person. And from our understanding of how type 2 diabetes develops, we know that the, the longer you have the, the sugar in your blood, uh, the more damaging this is to your pancreas and islet cells and, and all that 
that's um, involved in the pathology of, of diabetes. So this is why we, because we see this acutely with sleep deprivation and we see the correlation that people who sleep very little for a long time are more likely to get uh, uh, type 2 diabetes, it's very easy to connect the dots and say, well, of course, they're more likely to get the diabetes because the one candy that they eat has more of an impact because of this impaired um, response um, caused by sleep sleep deprivation. Um, so what would still be uh, missing strictly would be you, you um, take people who are at a high risk for developing diabetes, then you one half of them you you um, treat with some sleep intervention, like you give them cognitive behavioral therapy for uh, therapy for insomnia, so they sleep better. The other group gets some placebo treatments, some like a psychological talk treatment that doesn't change sleep, and then the sleep treated people would indeed have a lower risk of diabetes. So that's a piece of evidence that we don't have yet, which would be the placebo thing, like the highest quality of evidence, but we have everything short of that. So the um, evidence is very good to say, please take care of your sleep, sleep as much as you require. Otherwise you might increase, you probably do increase your risk of um, diabetes or other metabolic disorders. We have a similar chain of, of, um, evidence for cardiovascular diseases where you also see the correlation in the epidemiological studies and you also if you do short-term lab studies you also see biomarkers and mechanisms change that would explain how this could cause an increase in cardiovascular disease for dementia we have that less um, so we also see the epidemiological phenomenon that very little or very much sleep does correlate with an increased risk for dementia. The mechanisms of dementia development are less understood. And simply for that reason, we, we can't pinpoint whether sleep is uh, doing that or not. Um, but uh, some of the um, aspects I mentioned in the beginning, like this metabolic clearance and this um, um, response to redox stress, uh, oxidative stress and all that, would be a reasonable mechanism how a lack of sleep could causally increase your dementia risk. Um, so it's probably quite unhealthy if you're an eight-hour sleep requir requiring person to follow Mr. Schwarzenegger's advice and um, as a habit only sleep six hours anymore. So it's not only that you're um, at a higher risk for having accidents, you're less alert and less um, efficient with what you're doing, you're, you will make more mistakes, but uh, very likely you also increase your uh, risk for a lot of things that you don't want to get. So that's very common in our culture that people pride themselves of, of working very hard and then kind of evidence for, for how hard you work is that you kind of see signs in your body like I'm working so hard because I'm so diligent that I'm even sacrificing my health kind of and uh, this this not sleeping I think is a is a sign of that that people pride themselves of sleeping only so little because they're so diligent and that's very unhealthy behavior in principle you can make the decision on how much you sleep yourself but what if your job or school schedule demands to go against your circadian rhythm Late work for larks and early work for owls? So the sleep need, uh, like the sleep pressure, sleep need, we just said the, the average is eight hours, but there's a distribution. Some people uh, require much less and, and some require much more. 
as long as you're in a six to maybe nine and a half hours requirement, you're, you're still in the normal range. And when you get beyond that in, in either direction, you're in a range where it could start becoming uh, pathological. And th the same you see for the, for the circadian types. So we have a circadian rhythm, like an inner feeling that tells us approximately the time of the day. And this uh, inner clock governs many physiological functions. Sleep is one of them. So we are tired during the night and awake during the, during the day. We still see this variation between individuals that some people, if you just leave them alone uh, in the same environment, some people like to get up a bit earlier and others a bit later. And they also would go to sleep a li little bit earlier or a little bit later. And that's not strictly correlated to the amount of sleep they require. If you're an early riser, you're not automatically a person who needs little sleep. So there was a, a Nobel Prize in, I think, 2017 for people who elucidated the molecular workings of the circadian clock. In a nutshell, you have a gene that codes for a protein, and when the gene is transcribed, the protein builds up, and the protein then at some point starts inhibiting its own transcription. The buildup of the protein stops, and other mechanisms uh, come into play that uh, degrade the protein, uh, so it disappears, and once it's gone, uh, the gene is transcribed again, and the whole cycle starts anew. And uh, one cycle just takes 24 hours, approximately. And this is how the, how the circadian clock works. Um, and if you just uh, look at the circadian clocks of different people, then you see that there also is a distribution uh, similar to the to the sleep requirement that you see, like the hours of sleep people need. You also have this distribution uh, for their internal clock duration. And for most, it's just a little bit longer than 24 hours. But for some people, it's quite a little bit, quite a bit longer. And for other people, it's quite a bit shorter than 24 hours. Most of us um, have no problems adjusting to exactly 24 hours days. Although most of us would have an internal clock time of 24 hours and say 10 minutes, more or less. And that's because uh, we can adjust our internal time uh, based on external cues. And the strongest external cue is the light. So when we see the sunrise, we are kind of on uh, reset the clock, day starts now. And forget the 10 remaining minutes, day starts now. And the thing is that our sensitivity to those external cues changes uh, depending on when during the day we receive them. If the sun rises exactly when you suppose it to rise, it shouldn't change your clock. And when it rises kind of later than what you expect, uh, your clock should be shifted a little bit. Um, and the thing is that if it, if it rises, say, one hour later than you would expect, this doesn't change your internal clock by one full hour, but just by, say, um, uh, 15 minutes or so. Uh, and, and, this, and this is why people with different internal clocks can have uh, very, very different behavioral patterns. Like um, people would get up at uh, 5 o'clock in the morning and uh, regularly, and others would get up at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning regularly. Although if you would look at them in a bunker devoid of external influences, their um, internal clock actually would um, differ by only uh, 30 minutes or so. So this is what, what, what people um, uh, refer to as, as olds and larks. Like the, the very late uh, types are the owls and the very early types are the larks. 
Um, but there's everything in between, like that's a Gaussian uh, distribution. But the length of the internal clock doesn't just differ between people, but it also depends on your age. When you're a child, um, you're, you're earlier, you have a shorter internal day. Uh, when you're a teenager or young adult, it's very long, and then it becomes shorter during um, adulthood again. So this is the reason why uh, sleep researchers often call for high schools to start at later times because uh, the students will have to appear there quite early. And even if they are very disciplined and do get up in the morning, their internal clock is still at subjective night. So it will be, uh, so they, they will be less alert and this might also have some health effects. So what happens to us in Europe now as we switch to daylight savings time? For daylight savings time, we change our clocks for, for one hour, but our internal clock, our circadian time, doesn't read the clock. It, it reads the sun. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, the alarm goes off earlier. Yes. So you do get, get up earlier, but since uh, sleep pressure and circadian sleep regulation are two parallel processes, um, just getting up earlier doesn't really or it doesn't fully synchronize mm -hmm. or resynchronize your clock. For people who behaviorally adjust the, the light they're exposed to, like you um, you shut the blinds and only open them when you get up, then of course you, you regulate your light exposure and you, you can also shift your, your clock to some extent. But yeah, so we, we see from just epidemiological data that, that this, is, this happens very limitedly um, and people... Uh, stick to the uh, to the sunrise sunset times but this means that basically everybody has at least temporarily the same problem that teenagers have namely their internal clocks aren't synchronized with the wake and sleep times that we culturally impose this has consequences we do see um, during those daylight savings uh, time shifts that there are more road accidents and um common interpretation is that people are not as rested in that week and this is why they have more accidents there's so with industrial accidents the data are not as striking so there are some observational studies that report uh, there might be more industrial accidents like people working with machines that have more accidents during these daylight saving time shifts um, but that seems to be uh, so there are many studies that don't find that and seems to be if, if this effect is real it seems not to be so strong but we do know if if you deprive yourself of sleep kind of irrespective from this one hour daylight saving times change. For example, you follow the advice of Mr. Schwarzenegger, uh, even though you would require your eight hours, you have a strong cognitive decline in, in, in several of the cognitive faculties that there are. Um, some of them are more sensitive to sleep than others or sleep, sleep need um, or lack of sleep. Uh, and so you're more prone to certain accidents. So that's, that's something we know. Feeling tired and such possible risks of accidents are annoying, possibly dangerous. Should we get rid of daylight saving time? So in the European Union, um, there, there recently was a poll where people were asked um, if they want to keep daylight savings time changes or go back to a one time that, that remains uh, uh, without, a, without a shift the whole year round. And mo most people wanted to abolish um, the, the, the time change thing. But then also most people said, let's stick to the daylight savings time, like to the, to the summer time and not go back to the winter time all year round. And so that means, especially in winter, when the, the sun rises uh, very late anyway, 
it would be even an hour later. And it's to expect it that, um, especially for late types and for teenagers who uh, are late types by default, it uh, uh, would be even harder to get up in the uh, in the morning. And that's not just a question of how disciplined you are. Like if you if you phrase it in a way like it's it's harder to get up, then you say, well, I pull it up, and even <laughs> if it's harder, just just do it, man. Yeah. Um, so it, exactly. uh, there there are problems problems to be expected uh, to to be expected that that uh, come from that, and this is why quite a number of uh, chronobiologists and sleep researchers advise that this would be a bad idea. So we we should rather go back to the standard time mm -hmm. year round than the daylight savings time. So here we have it. Sleep deprivation, even only short term, has significant effects on your cognitive abilities. Just a single night of lost sleep has the same effects as the amount of alcohol that would make driving illegal. This tiredness is believed to be a mechanism that dials down the activity of the brain to reduce the accumulation of metabolites that may damage the brain. During sleep, these metabolites are cleared out of the brain. It is also the time for certain cognitive housekeeping functions, such as memory consolidation. Sleepiness is regulated through two parameters, the time since you last slept and the time of the day according to your internal circadian clock. Both the preferred sleep duration as well as the timing of sleep in the day are different between people. On average, we need between around about 8 hours of sleep. If we force ourselves to sleep fewer hours per night than we need, this can have harsh health consequences, from cognitive decline to an increased risk of metabolic diseases, in particular diabetes, and possibly dementia. As teenagers, and when we move the time at which we have to get up to an earlier phase of the internal clock, we are awake at times that our circadian rhythm says is too early. Accordingly, we are more tired and suffer from some reduced cognitive ability. Because of this, scientists wonder whether it would be beneficial to have high school start later. And if we want to get rid of clock changes altogether, it would be better to permanently stick to standard time rather than having daylight saving time all year round. Anyways, our conclusion can only be to better not take the advice from people like Schwarzenegger on sleep too seriously. I mean, especially someone like Schwarzenegger should know that lack of recovery time kills your muscle gains. Find the summary for this episode and further links in the show notes on our website www.scienceforprogress.eu. If you have questions, critique or suggestions, get in contact by email info at scienceforprogress.eu or on social media at scienceforprogress for Twitter and Facebook. Science for Progress is free and accessible. However, in order to keep going and continue to improve and grow, we need your help. You can find information on how to support us on our website if you follow the menu Supporters to your support. The best way to support us is through Patreon. For six US dollars per month, you can listen to the complete conversations that I have with my guests and also with my co-host Bart Gurton. We are almost halfway to financing our monthly expenses and it would be an enormous relief to have that covered. Check out the perks on www.patreon.com slash sci for progress. 
My sincerest thanks to those of you who are already supporting us. Thanks for listening. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Goodbye.